food is one of those things that's one of the rare um, things that's both a necessity and a joy and it's a necessity and a creative outlet so people have to eat and so you know to be able to make it something more than just I have to eat so I eat is, is pretty exciting I think. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Many in the hospitality sector dream of having their own restaurant one day. Although a highly creative sector, do the challenges outweigh the benefits in an industry renowned for long hours and slim margins? Mike Jakes is the head chef and co-owner of Tulip Restaurant in Victoria. Mike, how are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? Good. It's great to get you on the show. You've... uh, got your own restaurant there that has a bit of a history uh, in in Victoria. How are things at the moment? Um, it's a bit of a tough time, obviously. I mean, uh, it's hard to ignore the fact that the government and Reserve Bank are telling people to stop spending money. So, um, yes. it's uh, yeah, it's a tricky time, but uh, we're persevering. Tell us a little bit about the, the region um, that you're in and, and, and what you're doing. Sure. So we're uh, we're based in Geelong, in Geelong West, um, and uh, we have a restaurant here which has um, been going on for it'll be ten years in October. Um, I've been head chef here for two and a half years, and um, with my business partner, we purchased the restaurant in July. So um, it, Tulip's definitely sort of one of those places that uh, everyone has known about for a long time in Geelong. We've got a lot of very long time regular guests, but um, we're kind of modernizing refining a little bit things like that just making our own um, stamp on the place and um, I suppose it's kind of um, we, we benefit from having that long history but also um, it can be difficult to get across the point that you know things are changing and it, it is in many ways a new restaurant a new business and so you know we're bumping up against that thing where people kind of think well we've done tulip because we went there six or eight years ago um, and so, yeah, it's kind of that's one of our challenges at the moment is to is to sort of reinvigorate the um, the restaurant's sort of reputation and and make it interesting and relevant and sort of exciting for people again. That's a fascinating challenge that you have. How, how different is Tulip compared to sort of back then before you did buy it? And what what are the changes that you've made? You know that really stand out. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting one that I get asked a lot because. I sort of started making changes from when I was here. Um, I, I came over in January 2020. And so I've kind of been making changes. So when we bought the restaurant and people would say, what are you going to change? We'd already done quite a lot of that, I think. So um, it's still, we've always had the idea that we want it to be recognizably the same restaurant. But um, just a bit of kind of um Modernizing, I suppose, my experience in the UK, I've kind of um, wanted to slant a bit more towards fine dining. Um, that's always had a great reputation for having great technique, amazing produce, but it's been a very much sort of a um, country style, big, big portions, big, you know, um, generous servings and things. So I think we kind of just wanted to make the value of it, the experience rather than getting a huge meal, I suppose. Tell us a little bit about that transition. You know, there's a, 
from head chef to owner, there's a lot of talk about the big transition from being a chef to a head chef. But what was it like for you going from head chef to owner and the challenges you faced? Yeah, it's one of those things where I think we had a really good idea of how to run the restaurant, but not so much of a great idea about how to run the business. So um, I think, you know, I've always, I've been saying to people since we took over, um, it's that experience when you get your boss's job and when you're in the job, you think, oh, this guy does nothing. I do do everything for him and I understand, you know, I could do his job and then you get it and all of a sudden you think, oh, he was busy, you know? <laughs> um, and so it's been a lot of that, you know, like we, we've, um, it's kind of the same but more and, and just so many things that you never thought about when you were an employee, you know, that, you know, where does, uh, you know, what day of the month does super come out and things like that. It's just something that as an employee, you don't, not only do you not worry about it, but I think it's just, you assume kind of all happens automatically, which obviously nothing does. Mm. I want to explore sort of what you're doing there and, and what it's been like for you since coming back during that COVID period and your life back in Australia. But take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play for you when you were growing up? Yeah, I've always been a bit of an obsessive with food. So, I mean, I grew up on a farm um, in Woodend, so about 45 minutes north of Melbourne, um, beautiful area. And um, we had sheep on the farm. And so we always ate a lot of lamb or more likely it was sort of two tooth or hot or a mutton. And, um, and I, you know, I love, I still now when I'm serving lamb in the restaurant, I kind of am looking for that big flavor that I'm used to from my childhood. Um, my dad is quite a good cook. He, um, he's not in the profession at all, but he, um, he just loves cooking. And I've always, um, I always remember sort of hanging around the kitchen while he was cooking, um, mostly lamb and, um, and, uh, kind of that experience of him encouraged me giving me things to taste saying what do you think it's missing or we had a little herb garden outside and he'd send me off to the herb garden to pick things that I thought would go well with whatever he was cooking um and so that was that's great you know that kind of I think smell especially is such a great trigger for memory and so that now when I when I'm picking rosemary or sage or whatever it is I, I always think about you know going out and, and having that image in my mind of the dish that we were trying to make and whether this herb or that herb would go with it. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of very much um, my interest in food from the beginning. But then I I veered away from, you know, I'm from a um, fairly academic family, so the, the expectation was that I would go off to university and things, which I did, um, and never really considered cooking as a career. Um, but sort of when I did come back around to it, I had that like epiphany that this is what I should be doing all along, really. Wow. Tell us a bit about that period of time, you know, when you did have that epiphany, you were sort of at uni and how, how did that transition happen? So I went off to uni, um, like a lot of people who don't know what they want to do, and I did an, an arts degree. Um, and uh, and I ended up dropping out. I lived on campus um, at Monash Uni in a, a place that was quite quite famous for uh, being a great place to party. And um, and so I, I had an amazing time. You know, I don't regret it for a moment. A lot of my really close friends now are from that time. But um, I, when I dropped out, it kind of um, – it wasn't a surprise to me really because I just had no, no ambition and, and an opportunity came along through a family friend to go over um, to Chile and work on an oyster farm. 
um, because he had he had a, an interest in the oyster farm and they had the staff and everything, but no one that he knew and no one that he felt he could trust really. So um, I happened to be doing nothing and um, and so it was a, a good fit for me and I you know had a had a taste for adventure I suppose and and went off um, and lived by myself in Chile for six months uh, working on an oyster farm. That's extraordinary. Do, do you have any sort of food stories and stories of what it was like on an oyster farm in Chile? Yeah, so I mean it was great. It was an amazing experience. So we were on um, quite a large sort of inlet um, and the water is is really super cold because it's the Antarctic current coming up the coast of South America. Um, and Chile is also really interesting in that um, they have a huge tidal rise and fall. So these inlets kind of get flushed with fresh cold water twice a day. Um, and uh, so the oysters grow really quickly and, and really beautifully as a huge um, aquaculture um, sort of industry in Chile especially. And... Um, you know, the, the food was incredible. The, the guys that I was working with were all locals. Um, and so they would show me, you know, little mollusks and all sorts of things that they would eat, you know, fresh clams and, and mussels and things just eating raw straight out of the water because the water was so beautifully clean and everything was lovely and fresh. You know, we could just eat it like that. Um, sea squirts that they call puri and um, giant barnacles called picoroco and things just, amazing food that I'd never thought I'd never never considered as you know as being edible and and honestly things that look like alien food but they were amazing um and just like that kind of because I was there with that sense of adventure I suppose you know the guys would say here you go eat this and I'd just sort of have a go at it but the I suppose my best food memory is that we would have this farcical scene where everyone would turn up with a lunchbox um for lunchtime but the only thing in there was a couple of lemons and an oyster shucker and we'd go out and sit on the pontoon and eat oysters for lunch almost every day. So, What sort of impact did that experience have on, on you? I think it was kind of um, that I, I kind of realised that this is what I wanted to be doing, is that, that food was what I wanted to do in my life. Um, and, you know, being exposed to, to things like that and then living by myself, I had no, no contacts outside work there. So it was very much sort of, um, go home and, and cook and experiment and go down to the market and buy ingredients that I hadn't used before and, and play around with them and things like that. And I just, um, yeah, it really sort of, it really sort of got me started on, on wanting to be in the industry. Tell us about those sort of first steps into the industry. Um, what was it like for you? Um, so I, was already sort of mature age when I was already 24. So I decided that I'd do um, a full-time study um, at William Anglis. So rather than a traditional apprenticeship, I just um, went in to do a certificate three and um, sort of almost towards the end of that year, I uh, was out looking for jobs and sent my CV to the press club. And um, I was lucky that they, they picked me up. Um, I think it was partially that my experience um, on the oyster farm and things that had that had sort of separated my CV from others, I suppose, and um, and yeah, they they put me on and uh, I was there for a year and a half, um, and so it was a great place to sort of start my career. Really, and it was a quite a quite an amazing place to to experience as my first restaurant experience. We had George Kambaras on Dirty Linen just recently sharing his story. Well, what was he like and, and, and Joe like to work with? Yeah, so George was like, um, 
obviously very sort of inspiring for me as a young cook to, to see him around the place. He was always, you know, a bit of a larger-than-life character. Um, but my, my memory was that just he's quite sort of intuitive about food, I think. Sort of he would, he would come in to the kitchen um, and say, right, I've got an idea. And he'd, you know, grab out some ingredients and things and start putting things together. And he just, as, as an observer, I suppose, and then I was quite new to the industry at that stage, it was, it was very much like he just kind of had a feeling about what would work and what wouldn't work. And, you know, re- regardless of whether that was a conventional pairing or not, he thought that, you know, if he thought it was going to taste good together, we'd, we'd start plugging it together. Yeah, I remember vacuum packing watermelon with, with feta brine, which I just, at the time, I was like, how is this going to be tasty? But it was delicious, you know? So, um, and then Joe Grabak, obviously, is um, an amazing guy, just a um, more more of that French classical technique and um, and the, the London experience, I suppose, with Ramsey and, and those guys that um, he was uh, a great organiser of the kitchen, incredibly talented, the detail orientation with Joe was was the real sort of his strength, I suppose. He was he was had a terrific palate and was very very focused on on the details of a dish. So I think that was um, the kind of a, almost a bit of a yin and yang of, of George and uh, and Joe, which worked really well. You spent a fair bit of time with Philippe Michel as well. Um, what sort of influence did he have on you? Um, I mean, Philippe, Philippe's been incredible for me throughout my career. So I, I worked with him for um, nearly two years. And um, again, just just the absolute consummate professional, um, the, the depth of knowledge that Philippe has has kind of inspired me to really research into things and, and know the history of, of dishes and, and, you know, uses of ingredients and things like that, which, um, which has always been interesting to me, I think. And Philippe, just the the sort of his experience in the industry is something that you can't you can't fake, you can't buy, you can't get it any other way than living it. And I think um, he's he, there's been a, quite a few times in my career where I've reached out to Philippe and he's given me some really amazing advice, um, especially when I left Philippe's to um, go to England so my wife uh, my girlfriend at the time her visa was running out and we decided that we'd go over to London and so I kind of reached out to well I asked um, Chef Philippe if uh, he had any advice to me and he kind of broke down the opportunities that I would find and and the sort of paths that those opportunities might put me on for my life and it was just amazing you know he kind of said you know if you want to achieve this, then maybe look at a three star. And if you want to achieve this, go to a two star and, you know, all the way down to, if you want to have a, a happy family and, and a, a life where you spend time with your family, just go and work in a, in a nice casual, relaxed restaurant kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, he, he's, he just has that sort of, I, f- I feel like he's seen it all and done it all twice and can step back from it a little bit and see, see the, um, the industry and, and the life of a chef as a whole, I suppose. You spent a large portion of your career in the UK. What were the really important sort of venues and, and people that you worked with in your time there? Yeah, I mean, I, I went over to London like so many Aussie chefs and thought, right, now it's time to to see what the hard life of a chef is all about. Um, and so, I, yeah, I went over there with the expectation that I was 
I was going to get shouted at and, and all this sort of stuff. And so I suppose that kind of informed my choice when I was looking for uh, somewhere to go. And, and I, um, I started at the Ledbury, which is famously like that. Um, and they, they put me on to a, a guy who was at the time um, the youngest Michelin star chef in London. His name's Andy McFadden. And um, I worked with him in a, a small French restaurant uh, which had one Michelin star. And, I mean, yeah, if I was looking for hard, I got it. I mean, were, we were doing between 30 and 50 for lunch and 60 for dinner every night with just three of us in the kitchen. And, uh, and just, yeah, really kind of that, that military discipline, but also, you know, a, a real kind of wild card eccentric chef who uh, worked incredibly hard. I've never seen anyone plate dishes faster than him. But um, and he was like, you know, he would stand at the pass and we would just put trays of, of food, you know, on, on the, either side of him. And you just have both hands going at all times, sort of plating four dishes at a time um, as we were putting up the, the mise en place to him. It was just incredible stuff, but um, a really draining kind of life. You know, I, they ended up giving me the key to the restaurant because I was sort of there half asleep on the doorstep of the restaurant at seven o'clock every morning um, in the dark and in the snow or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, they, they ended up letting me have the key so I could let myself in rather than waiting outside. Um, so that was that was you know the my experience of of um, when it gets really tough and and that burnt me out pretty quickly. So I um, I went off and worked in a um, a really fantastic gastro pub for an Australian chef called Trish Hilferty, who was really at the sort of she was at the start of the the gastro pub revival in in London with um, a restaurant called the Eagle, and um, her her place the Canton Arms. Um, was amazing you know that was kind of the flip side of of the coin and, and really um the other avenue that philippe had kind of um described for me where i did something which was still great cooking still learning a lot you know like but back to basics whole animal butchery and um big brazers and um you know cooking a roast beef for 200 guests on a sunday and sort of just a, a totally different experience to what I had had before, um, but a better work-life balance as well, and, and my personal life really kind of developed in the in the year and a half that I worked there. So um, it was, yeah, that was kind of one of those things that I thought it was it was a fantastic experience, but in the end, not really my style. What I was hoping for in my career, so I went off um, and worked at a, a restaurant called Ferrer, which was part of Claridge's Hotel, um, for Simon Rogan, who's an incredible guy. Who's, he's had a lot, of, um, a lot of influence on my style of food, I suppose, and my, my ideas about food, um, just from, from his ethos and his kind of uh, experience as well. What, what did you take from your time with Simon Rogan? So... I think the major thing for me, which is really the way that I work now, is that so he had his own farm and um, he said that he had this kind of epiphany where he was standing in the, in the field in his farm with a big sort of armful of beetroots and thinking, what am I going to do with these beetroots? Rather than what will I serve with the steak in the main course or what, will I, what goes with fish, he was starting with the vegetables and I think if you want to work seasonally, that's kind of the only way to do it. Um, 
that to you can serve chicken or beef or whatever any time of year but you only have these great beetroots for a short amount of time and so even now when i'm thinking of a main course dish or, or whatever it is a protein dish my thought process starts from the vegetables and 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 also he he really highlighted the difference that you get from having a connection with where the food comes from what was the produce like in the uk that was amazing so you had you had the sort of um the the nice balance of these small farms like simon's farm and things which i was really really lucky to work with you know we, we would get a weekly delivery where there'd be trays of live micro herbs and things which we would have in the kitchen and, and pick things and put them directly on the plate um we would have uh you know beautiful heirloom varieties of all our vegetables um small production things meaning that there's you know more intense flavor even though they might look a bit wonky or whatever it is and then you pair that with um all the incredibly beautiful refined um produce coming over from france you know you get a, a, a tray of um on you know like uh Whitloff, which just you open it up and it looks like a chocolate box. It's just all beautifully kind of arranged perfectly. Each one is exactly the same. Each one is is beautifully perfect, um, wrapped up in tissue paper and things. It was just um, those two kind of extremes. Um, I think are, are really what makes the the produce in the UK exciting and and really um, interesting to work with. Farrah ended up closing while you were there and you were part of a team to open up a, a new restaurant in the same site. Tell us about that period of time and the impact it had on you. Yeah, so it was really, um, it was a very sad thing when Farrah ended. We were a very close-knit team, a lot of like-minded people who had, who had given a lot to the restaurant and, and it was, you know, the the decision to close was basically because of um, uh, a sort of um, difference of opinion between Simon and Claridge's about the direction of the restaurant. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was quite a difficult thing where, you know, a lot of people left straight away and those who, who were left to sort of man the station, I mean, I think uh, part of the reason I was selected to help open the new restaurant is when, when the uh, 11 Madison Park team came over, they I was talking to them and the chef, Dimitri, who ended up being the, who's now the culinary director of Claridge's, he sort of said to me, well, I can't work out what your job is here. And I said, well, I make the bread in the morning. I do the pastry section for lunchtime. Then I make the bread for tomorrow. And then I do the meat section for dinner. And he was like, okay, no problem. We'll, uh, you know, I think we can work with that. So, um, so yeah, I was, I was one of a few of us who got selected from Ferrer to, um, to open Davies and Brook, which was um, just a, an incredible experience, probably one of the most difficult times in my life because um, there was some delays in in opening the restaurant. And so um, when the original date we would have opened while my wife was on maternity leave and we could have had a lot more sort of flexibility. And then uh, by the time we did actually get around to opening, uh, my wife was back at work and so we had a one-year-old um, and I was working, I think we did, for the opening weekend, I think we did 15 days in a row of 7.30 in the morning until 1 o'clock in the morning. And so it was kind of just, you know, you, you learn you learn quite a bit about yourself doing stuff like that. 
you know, I, I know that after day 10, my eye starts to twitch and things like that, which is kind of <laughs> things that uh, quite a few people don't ever ha- have to learn about themselves, I suppose. You, you came back to Australia in a very interesting period of time for all of us on the planet. Uh, t- tell us about the decision to come home and, and, and what it was like trying to get back. Yeah, so I mean, my plan was always to come home. Um, we sort of thought that it would be a good fit to go um, to come back when my oldest son was going to start primary school. Um, and so, unfortunately for us, if we wanted to do a bit of travelling and things, that meant that September 2020 was the perfect time for us to leave the UK. Um, and it just also happened to coincide with sort of the peak of the uh, the peak of the pandemic there and and the start really of the um of the serious lockdowns and, and the border closures and things over here so um i was speaking with um graham and matt from tulip um and i actually accepted a job with them uh around that time august september um 2020 and moved out of our flat shipped everything um to australia and then uh, had the first of our flights cancelled, which ended up happening to us seven times. And uh, we moved into an Airbnb for a, an undetermined period, and, and we were there for sort of three and a half months. Um, yeah, just, just living in an Airbnb, working in jobs that I'd already resigned from, and, and I was very lucky that they understood that they were happy for me to just continue on until I had to leave. Um, which was which was very lucky, um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was really difficult that that uncertainty of book a flight and then plan to leave and then have that flight cancelled. I mean, my, I think my son um, said goodbye to his uh, his school class in the UK three times. Said oh, I'm I'm leaving on the weekend, and then he'd turn up again on Monday. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were determined that we wanted to do it. Um, we, we know that, you know, we knew that trading in a a two bedroom flat in London for a a house in Ocean Grove was going to be a big change and, and for the positive, you know, for the better for our kids. So, um, we were determined and, uh, we ended up getting in, we, we landed on the first day of hotel quarantine the second time around. So the, um, I think it was the 8th of December something like that on the 9th um in 2020 and so yeah two weeks in the hotel airport um with a two-year-old and a five-year-old um which was you know i'm very lucky that my wife is an exceptional organizer um and she had uh you know a, a schedule of a new toy each day and a new game to play each day and things for the kids and um actually on the day that we got out and we were collected by my parents um my oldest son said that he'd had a really fun time so that was that was good was it was it hard to you hard for you to adjust to working in a kitchen in australia when you started in julep compared to what you sort of were used to in the uk yeah i mean i i had worked in in very big teams um and tulip's a very small team um a very different kind of kitchen as well so um you know the the Davies and Brook Kitchen. I think I think they spent something like five million pounds on the kitchen itself, and so um, to to go from there with a team of 35, 40 chefs, and then I arrived at Tulip, and and there were three of us. Um, it was a big change, 
Um, and I think at that time as well, you know, it was it was a crazy time where we we were open for a few weeks and then we went into lockdown and then we'd come back out and um, we'd be doing takeaway. It was just you had to be so versatile as well, which was something that I, I hadn't sort of um, hadn't worked with before because in London, um, Claridge's. Uh, didn't want to do takeaway during lockdown because it, it wasn't fit, a good fit for their brand. So we were just off. Um, and so when we when I came over here and it was kind of, we'd, we'd get a few hours notice for a lockdown. It would be like, okay, takeaway tonight. Um, so yeah, it was it was an amazing, interesting time uh, to come in. And, and you know, touch wood, we're, we're past that now and we, uh, we move on with a bit more, sort of certainty um but it's uh you know it, it definitely taught me to think on my feet a lot more and to um to try and just be adaptable and, and change the things i can change and don't change the things i can't because uh you know you get upset about the fact that we were going into lockdown but um there's really nothing you can do about it the, the only thing you can change is your reaction to the news rather than changing the news was it an easy decision for you, having been head chef of the venue, to become an owner and take on the business? Um, yes and no. I think, you know, it, it has always been a dream of mine to own a restaurant. Um, and I think getting into a restaurant that was, first of all, already a going concern and also um, something that we I knew so well and, and even more so my business partner, you know, Dan's been the restaurant manager here for five years um, already. So the fact that we already knew really well what we were getting into and, and how it operates and um, what works and what doesn't, I think that was a, a really kind of a, a great way to take the first step into owning a restaurant where, you know, it's not all from scratch. We had a, a bit of a leg up and Graham, especially Graham Jeffries, um, had, had been a great mentor to me about, you know, giving me the the sort of um, the knowledge of the restaurant and giving me his insights of, you know, what he had learned from, from running Tulip for eight years or whatever it was that he did. So, um, yeah, I think it, it, we were lucky in that um, we we certainly would have found it more difficult to, to set up a restaurant um, from scratch. And so that was kind of something that really tipped the balance in, in the idea of saying, okay, let's dive in and have a go at it. You mentioned a bit earlier that you kind of wanted to take the restaurant in a little bit more of a fine dining direction. Tell us a little bit about the menu structure and, and maybe a dish or two that sort of exemplifies what you're doing. Sure. So for me, it's kind of, um, I would say my three years or you know, two and a half years at Tulip so far have, have been in really three distinct blocks. So the first year was to get my food um, up and running. And so my style of food based on that kind of um, experience that I had with, with Simon Rogan is, is a lot of making the, our own base ingredients. So a lot of vinegars and ferments and things like that, which then get used in subtle ways through dishes. So I, I think the way that I explain that is that um, everyone makes pickles, but if I make the vinegar, then no one's pickles taste like mine. So we do, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and so that takes time. So um, I think the first year was really getting my food how I wanted it. And then the second year, we, we really focused almost exclusively on the guest experience. Um, and at the end of that second year, we decided that the, the way forward for us was to only offer a chef selection menu. So we offer two or four courses um, 
six dishes in the two course and nine in the four course sharing food um and it's just kind of what's good seasonally again going back to that kind of starting all my ideas with the vegetables and things um and just focusing on the actual whole experience so not just this is a good dish and this is a good dish but how do the two dishes fit in the in the context of a menu um and so i suppose a big part of it is quite a small thing but i go out to every table at the start and introduce myself just after they've sat down and i'll pour a little drink by way of amuse-bouche to kind of just give people an idea of how we work um what they might expect even though there's no printed menu in front of them they just trust us as to that there are either six or nine dishes coming and and you know give them a bit of comfort that it, although they might not might not know what it is, they can expect it to be good. Um, and so at the moment, we're in autumn, we're doing a mushroom broth, which is this beautiful, really rich, um, the this, this sort of cooking juice that comes from the mushrooms, um, just seasoned up, uh, and it just really sort of rich, earthy, umami kind of flavour um, with a celery leaf oil on top. So um, people get straight away, they... It, it's a little bit comforting. It's kind of a, um, a, a really sort of interesting thing that's delicious and warm and, and makes you feel settled. And then um, it's also something that's kind of a bit left of field um, for, for a lot of restaurants. So people won't have tried something like that before necessarily. And so they kind of build the trust straight away as soon as, as, soon as they sit down. Um, and, and introducing myself as well, you know, I kind of have this corny line that I say where if it's a chef selection, people quite like to know who's doing the selecting. So um, I'll come out, talk to them about, you know, likes and dislikes, allergies, aversions, etc., And then we sort of tailor a menu so that everyone gets something that's um, that's appropriate and, and delicious. So. Does, does that connection with the guests have an impact on, on you and the way you approach your cooking as well? Absolutely. I mean, it, it helps me a lot with um, when I'm trying to work out what people will, will enjoy. You know, like we have we have a range of dishes. In, in the past, we've had, you know, ox heart or raw kangaroo or something like that. And, and talking to people, you know, sometimes I think, okay, they're going to get it or maybe that's not for them, you know. So that really helps in, in trying to make sure that everyone gets an experience that they're going to enjoy based on, you know, my, my read of, of the guest, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, also, you know, it, it's a lot about, you know, I'll come up with dishes and I think, okay, how will, how will I explain this at the table or how will, what, what's fun about this? What's going to draw people into the experience a bit more? Um, there's a, a dish that the only dish that we've done each year in the season is, is a corn dish that I came up with where one of the elements is a, um, what we call our corn hollandaise. So we juice sweet corn raw and then cook out the juice um, and the, the natural corn starch and the juice thickens it and then we whip it with melted butter to make like a, a corn hollandaise. Um, and people people love it, but if I don't deliver the dish, the, the question is almost always, what is that sauce? And so that's kind of the thing where I like to go out and, and introduce the dish so give them just enough information that they can get something out of the experience. I've often found with, you know, beer or wine or whatever it is, the more you know, the more you taste. And so um, without being too 
chefy and over the top and, and flooding people with information. It's nice to give them um, enough information that they can they can understand the work that's gone into it. A bit earlier on, you mentioned the importance of vegetables, particularly with seasonality. Do you, do you have any sort of um, connections that you've made with local producers that you can tell us about? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really lucky with that. So um, just, just absolute kismet. Something that fell into my lap was that um, the apprentice at Tulip, when I took over as head chef, um, is the nephew of an incredible farmer um, whose, whose name's Kim Turner. And she's not just a farmer, but she's a um, disability support worker. So there's a, um, a place just outside Geelong, which is called The Paddock. Um, and they operate as, a, um, as an experience for people with disabilities, Down syndrome, kind of intellectual disabilities, to go out to a working farm and grow vegetables and plant things and harvest things. And, and uh, so their primary function is, is the support work, but um, they also just have this incredible group of farmers who do everything organically, biodynamically, um, small crops. They grow things because they love them, because they're tasty, because they're fun to grow and that sort of thing. And so they, she just turned up on the doorstep with a big tray um, of, of things that they were growing and sort of said, would you be interested in using this stuff? And so we've had an amazing um, relationship with them throughout my time. And, and um, I can also tell you that it's it's definitely the, uh, the bill that gets paid first because it makes us feel great to pay it when it's going to going to a charity who do, who do amazing work. Um, so they're incredible. And also more recently we've, um, we've teamed up with a group called Farm My School, um, similar kind of idea where, where these guys have taken on um, a disused sports oval um, in Drysdale as part of the Bellarine Secondary College and turned it into a farm. And um, so their first sort of idea is to um, feed the school community. So the, the school canteen uses the produce. Um, they, they sell veg boxes to the school community and then they also um, sell to some restaurants. So we're very lucky that um, they, they've sort of agreed to, to work with us. So um, again, just beautiful organic um, produce that the school students get involved in the harvesting and get involved in growing and things and, and learn about seasonality and, and fresh produce and things like that so they're another fantastic one to use and and using farms like that is what really drives the seasonal aspect of tulip because you know when they say to me this is the last week for tomatoes that's the last week for tomatoes you know there's no oh yeah but we can get them from queensland or we can get them from paraguay or whatever we just say okay that's it you know they if, if they're done then we're done so in your first year, um, you uh, earned a chef's hat as, as owner of Tulip. How, how did that feel? It's great. You know, it's kind of um, the, the restaurant has had a hat throughout its time. Um, obviously, there were no hats awarded during the pandemic. Um, so it was, it was a bit nerve wracking, to be honest, to, to take over a, a hatted restaurant. Um, and we, we believed that what we were doing was, you know, as good or, or better than it had been in the past. And so, you know, it, it felt right that we retained the hat, but there's no, you know, with, a, with that kind of publication, there's no guarantee. It's kind of a, starting a, a new chef basically starts a new proposition for a restaurant. So 
we were yeah it was it was great you know it's a it's a fantastic feeling to be vindicated a bit in what we're doing because we do you know work in a, in a, a way that's different to a lot of places you know it's um on our little strip in Geelong West or in the center of town and things you can see that you know um a steak and a palmer will will fill tables but um that you know we have a, a sort of a vision of what we want short to be and and um getting the chef's hat really kind of makes us feel as if we're on the right path well you're doing amazing things there at tulip what, what do you love about what you do i just love what i love about working in a restaurant is that i think it's kind of food is one of those things that's one of the rare um things it's both a necessity and a joy and it's a necessity and a creative outlet so people have to eat and so you know to be able to make it something more than just i have to eat so i eat is is pretty exciting i think um and so i love talking to people about what i've done i like um presenting a dish to someone and getting a response i think it's it's a real immediate if you think about it as a creative pursuit it's it's one where you get kind of the most immediate response from your audience and and i really love that to to see people you know people come up to the pass and and say thank you and tell us that they've they've had a great experience i think that's kind of um what makes it worthwhile for me yeah well, it's amazing what you're doing there, Mike, and, and a real honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Will do. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Cheers. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>